it. So lovely to meet you. And, and please, uh, I wish you lots of safety and health over the holidays for you and all Thank your love. Thank you so much. That's needed. And you as well. We all need it, I guess. Yeah. So here I am. Welcome to Daisy's Dot Live Away. Where, uh, you were just nominated for the 63rd Grammy Awards for Jagged Little Pill. I was. Thank you. And you have a history. I read that you were with Sony and Mercury Records, and then you independently managed bands. I did. Um, tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, the heart of my, you know, these days I'm most known for my Broadway work, including, you know, being a producer of, of Jagged Little Pill uh, and my work in show business in general. You know, I have a project called The Fifth Beatle that's uh, based on the life of the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein. It was a graphic novel that I wrote and we're now turning that into a TV series. And there's a couple other TV projects that I'll be announcing in the few months. And that's kind of what I'm most known for, you know, is my work in show business. But the truth is my, my background really goes back to the music industry. You know, I've often said music was my first love, um, which is why being Grammy nominated uh, this year for, for Jagged Little Pill for Best Musical Theater Album really is a dream come true. I mean, I've been very lucky to see a lot of my dreams come true, but this one, uh, you know, because I'm a music head, you know, holds a really special place in my heart. Um, so yeah, but uh, but it all goes back to music for me. As I said, music was in many ways my first love. I was born here in New York City. Um, my parents were immigrants. Family is originally from India, but I was born here in New York. And um, I was born, you know, at a really interesting time where New York was filled with music and art. I mean, it still is now, but when I was growing up, it was, uh, you know, I mean, going back to the laws, it was, it was 21 to drink as it is now, but it was 16 to get in. So if you didn't care about drinking, you could get into anything you wanted, right? And my parents, as I mentioned, they were immigrants. They, they weren't from the entertainment industry. My dad was a doctor. My mother was an attorney, um, but they loved the arts. And ever since I was a little kid, and, and they loved this country. They loved, you know, being being here in America, and they appreciated what they what they did to get here. And so that's all a long-winded way of saying that they were going to take advantage of everything New York had to offer. And ever since I was a little kid, they were taking me. We grew up on 12th Street. They were taking me uptown to see opera and ballet and Broadway shows, and and exposing me to all the fine performing arts. And then ever since I was allowed out of the house on my own, when I was a little bit older in my teenage years, I was going further downtown to places like CBGB's and the old Danceteria. And I was seeing, you know, the Ramones and early Sonic Youth concerts and experimental theater is what they called it back then at places like La Mama and the Worcester Group. And so I grew up with this really well-rounded love of the arts that started with music, that was really grounded in music. And that was always my dream, was a, was a life surrounded by music, you know? My, uh, my grandfather, who was a very successful entrepreneur, and like most Indian families, he was the head of the family, you know? And, uh, and he always told me when I was growing up, you need to do what you love and you need to work for yourself. Those were the two things he told me. And, uh, and so I realized that I loved music and the arts. And uh, you know, I suspect when he said work for yourself, what he meant was work for the family business, um, but, but I took him very literally. And so I, so I always thought my dream is going to set up my own company and surround myself in, in a life working in the arts with a focus on music, you know? 
So I went to uh, to the Wharton School of Business and the University of Pennsylvania School of Arts and Sciences, where I met uh, or where I crossed paths with Scott. Um, he, Scott was a little bit older than me, but uh, but yeah, that's you know. So I have a background at UPenn and Wharton, and while I was there, I got a job working for Sony Music for Sony Music Distribution, and this was you know at the time that was one of my first dreams come true, is I had a job in the music industry, you know. Um, so I was a field marketing rep for uh, for Sony, work in the in the Philadelphia area, um, and then after I graduated, I moved back to New York. I was very lucky that New York City was home for me uh, because it's also a, a big hub of the music industry. And I got a job working for uh, Mercury Records, and I was there, division of Polygram, and I was there for. Um, about a little over two years, I left in 1999 uh, when Seagram's, uh, the Seagram's Corporation bought Polygram and merged it with Universal and budgets were frozen and everyone was miserable and looking for their next job. And as I said, my dream was always to start my own company. I always viewed working for the record labels as an extension of my education. Uh, so I thought, you know what, like I've done pretty well. I have a decent Rolodex of, of, uh, of contacts. I have a good head on my shoulders. I have some work experience uh, behind me. And thankfully I had a roof over my head. And, uh, and I thought, you know what? I'm gonna start my own company. I'm just gonna dive in. It's what I've always wanted to do. Rather than look for another job, I'm just gonna do it. And I called I it- I the name of your company. It's so Indian, Tiwari Entertainment. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. You know, the, the truth is the reason I called it that was not because I care about seeing my name in lights, but I wanted to see the name Tiwari next to entertainment. You know, I wanted to be an example to other young South Asians that you can do this. Like you can pursue a career in entertainment. It doesn't have to be just, uh, you know, in the world that I was growing up in back then. And, 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 you know, it's still in large part the case, like people like me were pushed towards medicine and engineering and finance and technology. You know, we weren't pursuing careers or encouraged to pursue careers in the arts. You know, when I started producing on Broadway, I was the only, as far as I could tell, I was the only producer of color on all of, in all of Broadway. Forget about just being the only Indian, you know? And now Jagged Little Pill, like, you know, myself and my, 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 one of my producing partners, Arvind David, were both of Indian origin. And that's incredibly rare, you know? Um, so even though that it's gotten a lot better on Broadway, but it's still, we're still few and far between. Um, so thank you for noticing that, because that, that was the reason I, I called it Tawari Entertainment Group, was so that people could see that you could be a Tawari and, and work in entertainment, you know? Big statement, not only for the Indian community as such, but also for uh, kids that are going to look up to you. And I say this to all of you guys who, you know, we spoke with Priya Darshani the other day, and I said the same to her. You guys are role models for a lot of young South Asian kids in this country and and the billion kids, you know, 70% of, of uh, 1.4 billion people who are below the age of 25 in India who no longer feel that they have to be a doctor or an engineer anymore and they can be who they want to be. So you guys are really leading the way here. So tell me more about your entire journey. Um, you, you, of course, told me that, that that's how you got started. But but I know you wrote The Fifth Beetle and yeah. and that is being converted into a, a, a TV series now. Correct, yeah. So um, 
and, and I also know that you secure the rights for the Lennon-McCartney catalog to yeah. use in a bi biographic project. How did you do that? Tell me yeah. that story. So, so the fifth Beatle, you know, go, going back to the beginning, you know, so I um, found myself going to UPenn and Wharton and, mm -hmm. you know, I was dreaming about a, a life in the arts. And at the time, uh, forget about the fact that I was also Indian, um, young people at Wharton were not encouraged to go into the arts. So I kind of had two things going against me or, go, or going against my dreams back then. Since then, Wharton has had a number of, of programs for, for, uh, for the business of the arts. But, you know, this was 90, uh, you know, this was 91, essentially. It's the early 90s. And, and uh, Wharton was very much about finance, accounting, investment banking, entrepreneurial management, but not entrepreneurial within media even. You know, this was before even the internet boom. So you know, my dreams were unorthodox, putting it, uh, to, to putting it uh, very politely uh, at Wharton. And so I thought, you know, if I'm going to pursue a career in the arts, I should study the life of the great arts entrepreneurs, especially because I want, my goal was to start my own company. I was a lifelong Beatles fan. Uh, my parents loved the Beatles. They also introduced me to the Beatles. And so I thought I should study the life of Brian Epstein, the guy who discovered the Beatles and managed them and ran their business. And again, this was 1991. And I was very surprised to find that there were no um, books about Brian. Uh, you know, they're, they're literally, I remember finding a book about John Lennon's astrologist and not finding a book about the guy who managed the band. And at this time, there was also no Wikipedia. There was no YouTube. There was no Google, you know. Is so there the was none of these online resources. That's right. So, so I literally had no choice but to track down people who knew Brian and to interview them. You know, and and uh, and this began my journey of studying the life of Brian Epstein, and what I you know I was initially chasing the Beatles stories. You know, I wanted to know how he came up with the idea for the suits and the haircuts. I wanted to know how did he book them on the Ed Sullivan Show in the United States when a British band had never made an impact over here. How did he even get them a record deal in the UK when every record label had passed on them? These were the stories I was interested in because I was a business student dreaming of a life in music. Um, and I got those stories and they were, were wonderful and inspiring and they're all in my book. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I'm, I'm actually really glad that there was no Wikipedia page or YouTube thing because I might have gone to that. I might have done a little research. I might have gotten what I wanted and moved on. But because I was forced to sit down with people who knew him and there was that really personal connection to my research, you know, when these people realized that I wasn't a, you know, a journalist looking for a salacious scoop, I was, a, I was a student looking for inspiration. You know, they began to sort of trust me and we became friends. And eventually they started to tell me, you know, if you really want to get to know what about Brian, you need to understand his personal life. And, and what they revealed to me was that he was gay and Jewish and from Liverpool. And those were three significant obstacles, uh, you know, in the 1960s. It was a felony to be gay. The Oscar Wilde laws were still in place, so it was literally against the law. Um, Anti-Semitism was rampant in the country far more than it is today. It's still a problem today, but it was much worse back then. And Liverpool, Liverpool before the Beatles, was not a town that anyone in, in England, much less the rest of the world, was looking at for the next big cultural thing. Um, it was a strategic port town, and th there was a lot of shipping going through Liverpool, but there was nothing cultural that people were looking at Liverpool uh, as a cultural hub. So, Anne Bryan was 26 years old. 
So he was literally a gay Jewish kid running around a dirty port town in the north of England, telling anyone who would listen to him, I found the next uh, a local rock and roll band who are going to be the next big thing. They're going to be bigger than Elvis. They're going to elevate pop music into an art form. You know, people laughed at him. They looked at it, looked at him like he was crazy. And they said, you know, your, your parents have a successful family business. You should stick to that. You know, and while I would never claim to have had the obstacles that Brian had in his life, I'm not gay or Jewish or from Liverpool, um, but I felt that I could emotionally relate to those struggles. You know, uh, you know, you could maybe understand how the gay Jewish kid from Liverpool was inspiring to the weirdo Indian kid from New York's Lower East Side. You know, I thought if that gay Jewish kid could bring the world the Beatles, why couldn't this weirdo Indian kid write comic books and produce, produce Broadway musicals? You know, Brian became what I describe my historical mentor. You know, I was born in 73, he died in 67, so I never got to meet him, but I studied his life intricately and I learned from him the way you learn from a mentor, what to do and what not to do. He wasn't perfect. There were a lot of things he did imperfectly and I try to learn from those as well. But this is all a way of saying like the Brian Epstein story is very personal to me. And it started way back from when I was in college, you know, long before I was thinking of writing a graphic novel or doing a TV series. I studied his life because it was inspiring to me as a young Indian kid, son of immigrants who wanted a role model of somebody who did what he wasn't supposed to do, who, who pushed against expectation. He was supposed to join his family business like I was, you know. So, so that, that was the inspiration behind it for me, you know? So what are... We're so many of us, and, we, and we're in the best places around, around the world. If all of us could get together, we are, form, we are formidable. We're a formidable No question force. about it. It happened the way I've seen the entire Indian music industry change during the pandemic. This has been the year of the independent musician. This has been the year of the independent artist. There are no stars anymore in Bollywood. People will not buy to watch or even take time to watch a star in a movie. They take time to watch an artist. Yep. So not only has the bigger audience changed, but people have started appreciating art and, and art forms a little bit more differently. And I think that's a big no change. Pleasure. And look, I, I, know we're, I know we're talking about entertainment and I don't want to veer the conversation into politics, but, but I also want to point out that like, I think, you know, this year our, our voice has really mattered politically, you know, with, with Jagged Little Pill. Um, we did a, a fundraiser for the Biden-Harris campaign that was incredibly successful, and I was deeply involved in putting that together. And I don't know if you, if you, you saw or attended, but there was, a, there was also a fundraiser for the Biden-Harris campaign that was called the South Asian Block Party. And a, a, a number of, uh, of, of folks from our community lent their talents to that, performing, That's speaking, encouraging. What's that? Mindy was there, right? Absolutely. She sure was. You know, and... and uh, and that was incredibly powerful, you know, and, and this year, South Asians had the numbers to swing votes in a number of states. And I am 100% confident that we influenced this election just by voting and by telling the, our aunties and uncles, like, you need to vote, your, your, your voice matters, you know? And so, uh, so I think like both in entertainment and in the, the course of the country, you know, the South Asian voice is being heard. And I'm really, really proud of that. We definitely are. Uh, as a community, I think we've become 
uh, more formidable, not only because we are highly educated, but also because we, we've decided to talk. And then we're in the forefront, look at, look at the new cabinet. Yeah. And look, I will also I will also tone it down. I have my political feelings and I wear them on my sleeves. I obviously did a, I did a fundraiser but I will tell you this, like I encourage the South Asian community to vote, to support your candidates and to create art, even if that's art that I don't like or even if you're supporting a candidate or a political stance that is different from mine. Obviously, I hope you'll support mine, but I don't care. Just go out and speak your voice. That's where it starts. You know, like we have to be doing this. And I really encourage anybody, not just the people who feel the way I do politically, but the people on the other side of the fence, go the South Asians on the, cause they are, we're a mixed community. We don't all have one voice. We're as diverse as any other ethnic community, but we, we need to be speaking our voices, you know? We need to, we need to, you're so right about that. And yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong in wearing your politics on your sleeve because that's- Yes, and I am proud of, I am proud of this cabinet and, and the results of this election. I'm not gonna lie about that, you know, like- <laughs> No, we're still got- I'm, I'm thrilled that my daughter gets to see a, a, an Indian woman or, a, you know, a half Indian woman in, in the White House. That's a huge, my daughter's nine, you know? She is nine years old, you know? I, I she will see that, I mean, that's huge. That's big, that's so big, not only for us as women, but just as a community, we should be so proud. And then the more, the more colored people that we see in power, in arts, in, in on our television says the more, uh, there is this entire surge of kids in the Indian Asian community, South Asian community right now that are not afraid or ashamed of wearing their identity on their sleeves. And that is a very recent phenomenon. It hasn't. There was an entire generation of Indians that didn't say they were Indians, right? And yeah. all of a sudden, the new, the millennial, the Gen Zs are wearing their identity as a second skin, yeah. and they're not afraid and they're proud. Yeah, and, and you know, you know, it's interesting to to circle back to um to the Brian Epstein story, to the Fifth Beetle. Like as I mentioned, he was gay and Jewish, right? And in the 1960s, there just weren't a lot of gays or Jews working in the music industry, especially not in the UK. And if you follow the music industry, you know that that's like times have certainly changed. You know, there's a lot of very powerful gays and Jews in the arts and entertainment industries and especially in music, but that just wasn't the case back mm -hmm. in the 1960s. And one of the things that, that Brian did was rather than see it as an obstacle, he leaned into to the people that were of his kind and, and they supported each other. You know, he leaned into Sid Bernstein, who was the legendary concert promoter that first brought the Beatles over to the US and organized those Shea Stadium concerts. Brian and Sid worked very closely together and they supported each other. And one of the things they bonded over was their Judaism, the fact that they were two Jews hustling in the music industry. Nat Weiss, who was uh, the Beatles US attorney, who also was very instrumental in breaking the Beatles over here. Nat was gay and Jewish. And, and, and that was one of the reasons when, when Brian was looking for a US attorney, he said, I'd like to find somebody who's, who's Jewish and hopefully somebody who's gay also, who, who will understand me, you know, who will support me because, you know, and, and, and Nat became Brian's best friend. So, you know, in some ways that was a template that rubbed off on me as well. It's like, yes, these things might be obstacles, but they might be assets also. You know, they might, if you, if you, you know, use it to, to your, find out who else is like you and, and, and join forces, like 
something really beautiful can be created out of that. So, so that's also something I, I learned from the Brian Epstein story was to, to support this community, to help as much as I can and to reach out for help. You know, when I need help or say like, who in this community can help me, you know? You know, we're always there for you. So and we're rooting you know, for you. I mean, the, yes. the community has been for sure. Absolutely. That's a big statement, not only for the Indian community as such, but also for uh, kids that are going to look up to you. And I say this to all of you guys who, you know, we spoke with Priya Darshani the other day and I said the same to her. You guys are role models for a lot of young South Asian kids in this country and and the billion kids, you know, 70% of, of uh, 1.4 billion people who are below the age of 25 in India who no longer feel that they have to be a doctor or an engineer anymore and they can be who they want to be. So you guys are really leading the way here. So tell me more about your entire journey. Um, you, you, of course, told me that, that that's how you got started. But but I know you wrote the fifth Beatle, and yeah. and that is being converted into a a TV series now. Correct. Yes. So, um, and and I also know that you secure the rights for the Lennon McCartney catalog to yes. use in a bi biographic project. How did you do that? Tell me yeah. that story. So so the fifth Beatle, you know, go, going back to the beginning, you know, so I um, found myself going to UPenn and Wharton, and mm -hmm. you know, I was dreaming about a, a life in the arts. And at the time, uh, forget about the fact that I was also Indian, um, young people at Wharton were not encouraged to go into the arts. So I kind of had two things going against me or, go, or going against my dreams back then. Since then, Wharton has had a number of, of programs for, for, uh, for the business of the arts. But, you know, this was 90, uh, you know, this was 91 essentially. It's the early 90s. And, and uh, Wharton was very much about finance, accounting, investment banking, entrepreneurial management, but not entrepreneurial within media even. You know, this was before even the internet boom. So, you know, my dreams were unorthodox, putting it, uh, to, to putting it uh, very politely uh, at Wharton. And so I thought, you know, if I'm going to pursue a career in the arts, I should study the life of the great arts entrepreneurs, especially because I want, my goal was to start my own company. I was a lifelong Beatles fan. Uh, my parents loved the Beatles. They also introduced me to the Beatles. And so I thought I should study the life of Brian Epstein, the guy who discovered the Beatles and managed them and ran their business. And again, this was 1991. And I was very surprised to find that there were no um, books about Brian. Uh, you know, they're, they're literally, I remember finding a book about John Lennon's astrologist and not finding a book about the guy who managed the band. And at this time, there was also no Wikipedia. There was no YouTube. There was no Google, you know. So there were none of these online resources. That's right. So, so I literally had no choice but to track down people who knew Brian and to interview them, you know. And, and, uh, and this began my journey of studying the life of Brian Epstein. And what I, you know, I was initially chasing the Beatles stories, you know, I wanted to know how he came up with the idea for the suits and the haircuts. I wanted to know how did he book them on the Ed Sullivan show in the United States when a British band had never made an impact over here. How did he even get them a record deal in the UK when every record label had passed on them? These were the stories I was interested in because I was a business student dreaming of a life in music. Um, and I got those stories and they were, were wonderful and inspiring and they're all in my book. Um, but, 
you know, it, it's interesting because I, I'm, I'm actually really glad that there was no Wikipedia page or YouTube thing because I might have gone to that. I might have done a little research. I might have gotten what I wanted and moved on. But because I was forced to sit down with people who knew him and there was that really personal connection to my research, you know, when these people realized that I wasn't a, you know, a journalist looking for a salacious scoop, I was a, I was a student looking for inspiration. You know, they began to sort of trust me and we became friends. And eventually they started to tell me, you know, if you really want to get to know what about Brian, you need to understand his personal life. And, and what they revealed to me was that he was gay and Jewish and from Liverpool. And those were three significant obstacles, uh, you know, in the 1960s. It was a felony to be gay. The Oscar Wilde laws were still in place, so it was literally against the law. Um, Anti-Semitism was rampant in the country far more than it is today. It's still a problem today, but it was much worse back then. And Liverpool, Liverpool before the Beatles, was not a town that anyone in, in England, much less the rest of the world, was looking at for the next big cultural thing. Um, it was a strategic port town, and th there was a lot of shipping going through Liverpool, but there was nothing cultural that people were looking at Liverpool uh, as a cultural hub. So Anne Bryan was 26 years old. So he was literally a gay Jewish kid running around a dirty port town in the north of England, telling anyone who would listen to him, I found the next uh, a local rock and roll band who are going to be the next big thing. They're going to be bigger than Elvis. They're going to elevate pop music into an art form. You know, people laughed at him. They looked at, looked at him like he was crazy. And they said, you know, your, your parents have a successful family business. You should stick to that. You know, and while I would never claim to have had the obstacles that Brian had in his life, I'm not gay or Jewish or from Liverpool, um, but I felt that I could emotionally relate to those struggles. You know, uh, you know, you could maybe understand how the gay Jewish kid from Liverpool was inspiring to the weirdo Indian kid from New York's Lower East Side. You know, I thought if that gay Jewish kid could bring the world the Beatles, why couldn't this weirdo Indian kid write comic books and produce, produce Broadway musicals? You know, Brian became what I describe my historical mentor. You know, I was born in 73, he died in 67, so I never got to meet him. But I studied his life intricately, and I learned from him the way you learn from a mentor, what to do and what not to do. He wasn't perfect. There were a lot of things he did imperfectly, and I try to learn from those as well. But this is all a way of saying, like, the Brian Epstein story is very personal to me, and it started way back from when I was in college, you know, long before I was thinking of writing a graphic novel or doing a TV series. I studied his life because it was inspiring to me as a young Indian kid, son of immigrants, who wanted a role model of somebody who did what he wasn't supposed to do, who, who pushed against expectations. He was supposed to join his family business like I was, you know? So, so that, that was the inspiration behind it for me, you know? So what are the things that you think um, Brian did that you almost did and didn't do because of Brian's story? Say that one more time. I said, what are the things that Brian did that taught you not to do those things? Things, well, not, yeah. things not to do? Yeah, well, you know, look, he, he had different pressures in his life because, for example, he was gay at a time where it was against the law, right? Um, so so I, don't, I don't totally fault him so much for this, but he really, you know, the easiest way of saying it is he just didn't make enough time for love in his life, you know, and, and it was harder for him than it was for me, but it's something I try to be very conscious of is to make sure that I make enough time for, to spend with my wife and my kids, you know, I, I work in entertainment 
and and it's it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. And you know, th this has been a strange year with the pandemic. We've been indoors a lot. Um, but in typical years, you know, I get invited to a lot of cool events and and openings and screenings and book launches. And you know, it would be very easy to think like I've got a great social life, and I you know I, I do all sorts of really cool, fun things outside of work. And then you look at it and you realize like, no, that's all work. You know, all those screenings and all those readings and all those cool things you're doing. Like, yeah, they're cool, but they're work related. And so I try to make sure that, that I spend as much time with my, my family as I can. And, and Brian didn't do that. Again, he had different pressures in his life, but he really didn't do that. I mean, he was a very loved man and he just didn't spend enough time with the people who loved him. He was constantly focusing on his work. And I try, try to focus on my work because it's hard what we do and make sure that I work diligently and, and, and work those extra hours to accomplish what you need to accomplish, especially, you know, the, the way that it was harder for him being a gay Jewish guy. It's sometimes very hard for me being an Indian guy. People look at me like, you're not supposed to be in this field. I need to work extra hard. But you know what? I also work for myself. And I also make sure that I'm there to put my kids to sleep every night. It might mean that I go back to work after I put them to sleep, but I do that, you know, and I make sure that I don't miss a, a, a music recital or a, or a dance recital. You know, I've, I try to be there for all of their things. And that's something that Brian did not do, but I learned from his example. Like he died at the age of 32, you know, never having had a proper boyfriend, you know, a guy that dedicated his entire life to helping this band, the Beatles, bring a message of love into the world. She loves you. All you need is love. Lovely Rita. I mean, that's what the Beatles were all about. And yet he didn't have enough time for the, for the love in his own life. And so I, so I try, I try to not do that, you know, that that's the, probably the biggest thing that I've learned uh, to do, not, what not to do, what not to follow his example. Being brown and being in an industry now where uh, there aren't any brown people, literally. How so there aren't many. I'm not the only one, but there aren't many, you know. Yeah. Uh, how difficult has this process been for you? And also, uh, do, you, do you sometimes feel an imposter syndrome because... Yeah, look, it was difficult, difficult getting here, although I have to say, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the industry of Broadway, there's cer there, we certainly are still few and far between. But if you extrapolate that to, to say, just show business in general or entertainment in general, you know, I, I actually would go so far as to say our time is, has arrived. You know, I mean, I, I think we're, I think we're kind of kicking butt right now on, on every front. You know, I, I, I love that you interviewed uh, uh, Priya uh, Darshini a few weeks ago. You know, it's, it's, a, it's wonderful that she and I are both nominated for Grammys and, and so is Anushka Shankar. And I mean, it's, it's awesome, you know, I mean, how great is that? And, uh, you know, and, and there was um, another Indian producer who's Tony nominated for, for, for a play. And like, it, this is our, you know, our time is, is, is coming. Um, or, 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 or I'm sorry, what I, what I meant to say is that I think our time is here. If you extrapolate that to be show business in general, the theater industry, we're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. There's not many of us if you want to just focus on the narrow world of Broadway. 
But I think South Asians are, are kind of are kind of have arrived now. And we need to what we need to do is keep supporting each other. We need to invest in each other's companies, put our money where our mouths are. We need to invest in each other's projects, put our brains, help each other creatively. Um, you know, the amount of, of wonderful South Asian actors and comedians and writers and directors who are making splashes in the film and TV world is pretty extraordinary. You know, so and, and I've become friends with a number of them. And I'm telling them, like, you know, I want to support your efforts in film and TV. And please come over to the other side and help support my efforts on Broadway. And, and I think those are the kind of things we need to do. Um, so that that's the that's the first part of your question. The, the other part, like, did I feel like an imposter? You know, not really, um, because like I, I personally believe that you you know that what I've been doing is just following my passions. And if I'm going to give advice to anybody, that that's the the advice that I would give you. What I learned from the Brian Epstein story, the one message from the Brian Epstein story, I think that's the biggest takeaway, is that no dream is too impossible and no person too unlikely to realize that dream. And I think if you believe that with all your heart and you're following your passions you won't feel like an imposter because you'll feel like you belong. Like, why shouldn't I be pursuing a life in the arts? It's what I'm passionate about. Now that doesn't mean I never felt like things were difficult. It doesn't mean I never realized that, that my color made me different and made me need to work extra hard. You know, when I say no dream is too impossible, I believe that. No person too unlikely to realize that dream. I believe that too. But I also believe the more impossible your dreams are and the more unlikely you are to realize that impossible dream, the harder you got to work. You know, like you may need to work much harder than the other guy or gal to get there, but you can get there. You know, so I certainly don't want to suggest that I never felt that my, my color made me and my background made me need to work harder. I felt, I, I still feel that all the time, but I've never felt like an imposter. I've never felt like I don't belong. You know, in fact, like it, it's given me more of a fire to be like, I totally belong and I am not an imposter. And what I need to do is if you think that, I need to show you that you're wrong because I don't feel that way, you know? Is there a point in time when the profiling stops? In, in uh, our head, definitely, it stopped a long time ago because we feel we belong where we, we're yeah. supposed to be. We're good at what we do, so there should have been there should be no questions about our uh, our yeah. our talent. However, does the profiling ever stop? I mean, I you know I think in in the entertainment industry, and and maybe this is true in other industries as well. It stops when you have success. You know, mm -hmm. if you're putting out you know brilliant work, people start to just respect the work, and they they you know and they just look at the work, and the work the work is undeniable. You know, and, and, and for me in particular, you know, the kind of projects that I've worked on, like The Fifth Beetle, about the Beatles manager, uh, graphic novel and a forthcoming TV show, um, Green Day's American Idiot, you know, taking that Green Day album and putting it on a Broadway stage. Most recently, Jagged Little Pill, taking Alanis Morissette's album and converting that to a Broadway stage. Those aren't projects that are Indian on the surface. They're not based on a Bollywood movie. They're not, you know, like we have a, a number of... Um, of people of color working in our, on our teams. So those projects in, in other ways, I think show diversity, but you know, Green Day aren't Indian and Alanis Morissette isn't Indian. And you know, those aren't pr pr potentially like obviously Indian projects. And I'm kind of proud of that too, because it's also showing the world that like as an Indian producer, I can do anything. You know, like, like I don't have to just be, be doing something that seems Indian, whatever the hell that means. You know, and I think like the more and more projects, like the more and more success you see, um, see us having, and the more and more projects you see us putting forward, um, 
you know, that, that may be atypical, you know, that may not be what, what they expect of us. Um, I think, uh, I think all that leads to less profiling to use the term that you used. Although, you know, I, I try just not to think about those things. I try not to feel profiled. I try to just keep, keep an optimistic outlook about things. I really do. And, and maybe that's, maybe that is a bit naive of me, um, or maybe that's a survival tactic, some sort of su subconscious way of just getting, getting through it. But I don't think about those things. I just, I, I, what I really focus on is like, am I passionate enough about this thing to work the extra mile? And then if I am, I'm just going to chase it and feel like, then why, why shouldn't I be doing it? You know, I'm probably more passionate than the other guy. I'm not the only person that has tried to tell the Brian Epstein story, but I suspect I'm the one that's been most passionate about it. I suspect I'm the only one that says Brian was my historical mentor, which sounds like a, you know, a really almost like, like scary stocky kind of thing, <laughs> you know, but it's the truth, you know, I'm that guy. So why shouldn't I be doing it? Inspires you, I think that the, the works for you. But coming to Bollywood, have you ever thought of doing something with the that entire Bollywood genre? And yeah, no, I'd love to. I just, I just haven't found the right project. You know, I, I was, um, I was approached uh, by the team behind Bollywood Dreams, if you remember that musical, mm -hmm. to join that project, and um, it just didn't feel right to me. To be totally honest, I thought the U.S. version that they were adapting, um, I just didn't love it. If I'm being honest. And, uh, and so that was just a personal thing and I need to work on things that I love. And so that one didn't feel right to me. I love the team behind it. Producers were amazing. The cast was amazing. I just, they made a number of changes to the UK version when they brought it over here that, and I was not the lead producer. So I didn't have the ability to, um, to influence those changes. And so the version that I saw was, I just thought, you know, it didn't, it didn't speak to me. And so, so I decided not to join that project, but I came close. Uh, but since then I've been looking and I just haven't found um, the right project. I love that Bollywood Dreams kind of opened the door, uh, you know, to, to, um, to Broadway, I think being, uh, being open to that kind of aesthetic. Um, and I think there are a number of other sort of spectacly oriented musicals that also, um, you know, have elements that, that feel Bollywood-like. Uh, you know, I even think it might be a bit of a crazy thing to say, but I think Town, which won the Tony uh, last season, I think has, a, has a, uh, elements that feel very Bollywood to me. Um, so I think that I just need to find the right project. I haven't found it yet. Absolutely. So tell me more about your nonprofit, Musicians on Call. Uh, thank you for asking. So I've been very lucky in my life to have worked on a lot of really interesting things. Um, the Fifth Beatles, A Labor of Love. Jagged Little Pill has been a labor of love. I was very proud of American Idiot. Um, but I have to say, of all the things that I've done, uh, co-founding Musicians on Call is the thing that I am most proud of. Um, it is a nonprofit organization that um, its, its mission is to bring live and recorded music into the, to the bedsides of patients um, all over the country. It has a broader mission of, of using music and entertainment to complement the healing process, which is a very broad mission. But specifically what we do, as I said, is we bring live and recorded music to patient bedsides in healthcare facilities all over the country. And we're looking at international expansion soon as well. And you know, before the pandemic, the heart of our programs was bringing local musicians literally into the hospitals with a guitar or another portable instrument, go room to room and perform for patients. And patients of all stripes, pediat from pediatrics, from kids to elderly people in hospice. I mean, we, we serve all um, communities that are in need of healing. 
and you know that that was the heart of was actually going ar going around and doing it. And then after the pandemic, um, you know, we're, we're, it's not so easy to get into hospitals, obviously. Um, but it's but this was has also been a really wonderful year for musicians on call because for years we've had a virtual program. We just haven't talked about it as much because it's not the sexiest thing that we do. But all of a sudden we were completely set up to do this. And so we, we immediately started doing virtual performances and we have, you know, musicians on call, it, it, you know, I don't know how else to say it. It sounds a bit awkward, but we've thrived this year. We've, we've served more, more hospitals, more patients because we've been able to do it virtually. And believe me, as soon as the world uh, allows it, we can't wait to get back to do actual live performances. Um, but in, in, I mean, live, live, like in the room, in person. But until then, we're doing live virtual performances, and we're being supported by by musicians across the musical spectrum, from from Dolly Parton all the way down to to local artists that you've never even heard of. You know, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable, and so I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of what we're doing at Musicians on Call. Um, it is, it, as I said, it is the thing that I have done that I am most proud of. Um, and I will say it was also founded for me, for my part, I was a co-founder out of a, a very personal story of, of losing my mother to cancer. My mother was really the, you know, one of the, my mom and my dad, like even though they didn't work in the arts, they, they loved the arts and she was very instrumental in, in, uh, in my early passions and she loved music, you know, and a, a little over 20 years ago, um, she was unfortunately dying uh, of cancer in a hospital bed here in New York City. Um, one of the greatest cities in the world, and she was seen by, depending on who you ask, either the best doctors in New York or the best doctors in the world. Um, and you know, still, still, her end of days was pretty grim. You know, she the the those hospital rooms that she was in um, were were not filled with music. You know, and and uh, and um, you know, they were quiet and they were were cold. And you know, I thought that if music had been filled in her with in her room, it wouldn't have saved her life. You know, cancer. Can she was her cancer was in stage four, and and cancer made sure of that. But it would have made her end of days j just a little a little happier, you know. And so after she passed away, um, my co-founder Michael Solomon, who who had lost a, a girlfriend to cancer, um, had approached me and and said, you know, I know you're going to want to do something constructive with this experience. So when you're ready. Let, let's talk about it. Let's figure some figure out something that we can do together. And it did. It took me a, a, a year or so to just get over my grieving. Um, but after that, we uh, we decided to 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 try to find something to to do together. And we wanted to do something that was programmatic. We were both involved in the Kristen Ann Carr Fund, which is a wonderful fund that um, raises money for sarcoma and from for rare forms of cancer research. And and it does great work. But we decided we didn't want to just be a fund. We wanted to do something that was a little bit more proactive, that was actually going to be programmatic. We were trying to figure out what what could our thing be, and until we could come up with our great idea on the side, and this was at the period where I was still managing bands, you know, we were like, let's bring some local musicians into Sloan Kettering, which was a hospital that we had both had contacts in and and you know knew how to navigate the system there, and uh, and so we brought musicians into the hospital. They performed in the lounges and in the recreation centers. That's not unusual. We weren't the first people to do that. And uh, and one night after one of these performances um, by the with the artist Kenley Mattis, a uh, a nurse came up to us and she said, you know, that was wonderful, but it's really a shame because there were a number of patients who couldn't make it to the lounge, 
because they're either um, not allowed to leave their room, they have a condition that where, where they have to stay in their room, or they were sleeping, or they were eating, or they were in the middle of a treatment, or any number of reasons why a patient couldn't leave their room and come to the lounge. And, uh, and we knew Kenley really well, and we knew that he would be up for this. And we said, oh, well, you know, we can certainly spend a little extra time and go to the room if that's something you think that they would be interested in. And, uh, and she said, absolutely. And, and so we walked with Kenley from room to room for these patients who couldn't make it to the rec center for these intimate performances. And I can tell you, it was magical. You know, you could literally feel the air in that room lighten. You know, and, and I saw young people who reminded me of myself in those rooms, not knowing how, what to say or how to talk to their sick parent. And all of a sudden through music, they were, they had something to talk about. Oh, mother, mom, the music, you know, they could, they had, they had a common point, uh, uh, you know, of, of communication through art. And the nurses, the nurses were, who were tired and working these long shifts, they were somewhat smiling and looking around the corner, what's going on? And, and doctors who, who aren't always the most gregarious were also poking their heads around the corner. What's going on over here? What's this mean? You know, laughing. It had such a powerful effect on everyone and the patients. You know, we were told, oh my gosh, she hasn't smiled in a week. You know, we were told that that patient hasn't, hasn't moved in a week and they were tapping their fingers. You know, it was so clear that this had a powerful effect on everyone who it, who it crossed that night. And then we got into the elevator, Michael, Kenley, and I, to leave. And Kenley turned around to us. And he's one of these guys that's a road warrior. He will tour everywhere from gigantic concert festivals to living room performances. And he turned around to us and he said, that was the most rewarding musical experience I have ever had. You know, and, and we knew this is it. You know, I think of that John Lennon line, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. While Michael Solomon and I were trying to come up with the big idea, there it was right in front of us. And so we went home feverishly and we started writing a business plan, you know, and here we are 20 years later and Musicians on Call is thriving and we have programs in every single state and we're looking to expand internationally and we've been able to keep our programs going during the pandemic. We've been supported by an incredible number of celebrities during the pandemic who've been interested because they because they have more time in, in con contributing to our Zooms and to our fund the cast of Jagged Little Bill. I'm very proud that we launched a Broadway on-call program um, where we we the whole cast went into hospitals virtually to perform for patients. And anyway, I, I couldn't I can't speak enough about how proud I am of musicians on call. And anyone out there who wants to get involved, please just go to musicians on call, musicians plural on call org. And there are a number of ways that you can contribute. Um, obviously, we're always looking for donations, but but I'm not asking you for money. Money would be great, but there's a number of other ways non-financially you can contribute as well. So please come to the website and, and contribute in, in any way you can, monetary or otherwise. Thanks so much for saying that, Vivek, uh, and we'll put it out there, definitely. Thank but you. Tell me, tell me how the pandemic has affected Broadway, and do you think that it's going to, how is this going to bounce back? Well, um, you know, I mean, everybody knows how it's affected Broadway. I mean, that's been all over the news. We've been shut down, you know, and we've been shut, we, we will have been shut down for over a year. You know, we shut down in March, and... Um, you know, the earliest we're, that, that anyone is talking about coming back is over the summer. Uh, so it's going to, you know, I, I am very hopeful and uh, to, to, to the extent that I will say confident that Broadway will return next year. 
you know, we all felt that way even before uh, there was announcements of vaccines, but with vaccines on the horizon, I think it will make it safer. And then I think people will also be more comfortable. So I really do believe, I'm not gonna um, put a date on it on this call, but I really do believe that before the end of 2021, Broadway will return. And, uh, and one thing that I have noticed that is positive is, is, is our community has really stuck together and supported each other. You know, just speaking personally for my show, the Jagged Little Pill cast and band and company have supported each other on Zooms and uh, band members have, have lent their talents to perform for cast members who are singers, for virtual concerts that they've been doing. Um, we've done Jagged Little Pill events. Just this past weekend, we did a live concert with the, with the, the entire principal cast and, and members of our ensemble. And we found ways for our ensemble who couldn't be uh, on stage due to COVID restrictions to perform in a pre-show. Um, you know, we found ways uh, both business-wise and, and personally to stay in touch and to support each other throughout the, the pandemic. And I think we've been a microcosm of what Broadway is like as a community. The Broadway community, um, while it has global impact, it also is a very small world and we support each other and, and we've been there for each other. And it's all a long-winded way of saying that given the, the, the way that we treat each other and the way that Broadway supports each other as an industry, there is no question in my mind that we will come roaring back. And from what I've seen, from fan responses to the concert that Jagged Little did this weekend, to the success that Australia has had reopening some of its shows, some of the Broadway shows are already opening there, to responses on Twitter from our fan community, the fans and the interest are there. So I know we as a community will come roaring back to give our fan with to give our fans something to see, and uh, and I believe that the fan community is there and they will come roaring back to support it. So you know, it's been a hard time for Broadway, clearly, you know, the, the, so to answer the first part of your question, sure, we've been shut down, but but there's been silver linings to that as well. A lot of us have, have looked for other ways to do things like this live concert we just did. Hamilton did a very successful live capture on Disney+. Plus. There've been another uh, number of other shows that have done, use the new technologies to do things over Zoom and to keep development going. Um, quite frankly, I will say that on the development side of my life, you know, my, my sweet spot, what I focus on is collaborating with the music industry and celebrity artists to transform what I call high profile music into narrative entertainment. And a lot of those practitioners of high profile music are at home this year. They've had canceled tours, they've had delayed album releases. And so they've been working with me to develop. I have nine shows in development, not all for the stage, not all for Broadway. It's about half for Broadway and half for, for television and film. Um, but it's been an incredible year of development. So yes, I would much have preferred that Broadway not to close down and for our shows to keep running. And that's been really hard on the community. But, but we've also been forward thinking and we've been finding other ways um, to keep our, our shows in the minds of our fans and, and other ways to develop new material. It's been a good year for development. And, uh, and how will we come back? We will come back stronger than ever. I really do believe that. And, uh, and, and it will be back before the end of next year. Uh, would you, what would you tell Indian kids in America who are, um, of course, they have the, the expectations of aunties in the community and, uh, and the, the greater community to do certain things in a certain way, which, you know, growing yep. up here, you know how crazy that can get in 
and um, while growing up and you know, you're still kids. But now they're looking to create their own paths because what not only this year has done, but internet as such has done is thrown open this entire new world of things to do. Um, and, and they're trying to for that they don't want to be doctors and engineers anymore. They want to do what they want to do. So what would you want to tell those kids? Yeah. Well, let me start by saying that for those of them who want to be doctors and engineers, God bless you. Um, you know, there are a num number of doctors and engineers in my family. And quite frankly, in a period of a pandemic, we need them more than ever. This is a period where more than anything, we need health and we need rebuilding. So, so there is nothing to be ashamed of uh, with, with medicine and engineering. In fact, quite the opposite. I wish that I had been passionate about medicine the way my dad was, because that is a noble field that the world needs right now. It just so turned out it's not what I was passionate about. So let me start by saying that, you know. So the first thing to do is figure out what you're passionate about. You know, and if it turns out you're not passionate about engineering or medicine or technology and you're passionate about whatever it is, athletics, arts, entertainment, media, sewing, fashion, who knows, right? First thing you got to do is figure out what you're passionate about. And then I would just, uh, you know, I said it a couple times on this call, like, like I would remind people of the lesson I learned from Brian Epstein, which is that no dream is too impossible and no person too unlikely to realize that dream. You know, you can do anything. But I will also remind you of the corollary that I said earlier. The crazier your dream is and the more unlikely you are because of your background or your, wherever you're based geographically or whatever it might be, you may have to work a lot harder than, than the next guy or gal to realize that dream. Um, but you can realize it. No dream is too impossible and no person too unlikely to realize that dream if you're willing to work your tail off for it. So I would re remind them of that. And then the other thing I would say is, is, um, is do your research, you know, and, and uh, find yourself a historical mentor. You know, I was not able in my life to find, a, in the earlier part of my career, a living, breathing mentor. Since then, there have been a number of amazing mentors I've had in my career. But when I was a student and I was looking for a mentor, I couldn't find one. And I found, found one from history. I found Brian Epstein, you know? And, and, and this was, as I said, before there was Wikipedia or YouTube or Google. Like nowadays, it's so much easier to do the research, you know? So go figure out what field you're passionate about and then, and then do your research. Find, if you can't find a mentor in your hometown, find a mentor from history. You know, the, the best thing about a historical mentor is that they're dead. They can't tell you no. They can't say, I don't have time to be your mentor, or they can't not take your call when you call them. You know, I, I'm joking around here a little bit because obviously the, the, the hardest thing about a historical mentor is they're dead. You have to do your research. You have to dig deep. And if you want to study the life of Abraham Lincoln, it's not just reading one or two books or watching a film. I'm talking about digging deep, spending years researching the life of the person that, it, that will inspire you. But that's what I suggest you do. Find yourself a historical mentor for starters. There's no reason not to do that. You have no excuse because you have way more tools than I did when I was growing up. But then the other thing is like, try to find that actual living, breathing mentor. Because as we've been saying on this call, South Asians time has arrived. We're here. We're working in a number of fields that we weren't when I was a kid, right? So do your research and find out, is there an, uh, someone of South Asian origin? who's working in the industry that you're interested in working on. And if there is, find out how to get to them and, and tell them who you are and tell them that you're looking for some support. And I think there is a, a very, very good chance that they will see themselves in you. 
and will realize I didn't have the opportunity that this kid is looking out for and I will help them. We are a supportive community when we are asked, you know? And so, so just reach out to us and ask. And, uh, and, and I think you, you might actually find that living, breathing mentor. Um, so, so those are the things that I would say. Don't give up on your dreams. Do your research. Put in the work and reach out to us. Reach out to the ones that are doing it or have done it and, and, and get help. Don't be ashamed to ask for help. Well, thank you so much, Vivek, for taking out the time and talking to us. You're welcome. Hey, you know what? I'm going to add one more thing. Sure. Make sure you let your those aunties and uncles who, who may not be supportive, make sure they realize that it's real, that it's real work. Make sure, make sure you, they realize that it's a real business and you can make money because that's often the thing that, that, that the older generations are concerned about, as they should be. You know, they, it was hard for them to come over here. They want their kids, and I'm a dad now too, I get it. They want their kids to have stable and lucrative careers. So show those aunties and uncles, don't just rebel. Show them that these are industries where you can make a lot of money and have a good career. You know, so, so do that too. Do that too. You could right now the way the world is going you can make tiktok videos and make money too so hey there we go and explain no. that explain that 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 can be done you know the older generations not to be faulted for not understanding that oh my god like i talk about the older generation i realize i am the older generation my kids are doing things that i don't totally get you know and like and i want to know and if, if my kid was to show me like here's something i'm doing and it's real it's serious it may look frivolous but it's serious i would take that seriously so, you know, oh, so I'll, I'll, add, I'll add that to my, my cadre of advice. Absolutely. And it, it won't take a lot of convincing because there's so many role models around us now who have done what we weren't able to do earlier. And now with people like you out there, I think it'll be easier for the next generation to... I hope so. All right. This is all for this week from us. I'm Scott. I'm Aral. This is Zane. Signing off this week on theaces.live. Stay safe, everyone. And have a wonderful rest of your week. Catch you next week. Take care.